Hey everyone, this is Michael for the In Common Podcast, which is now the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC. This year, the IASC is hosting a series of virtual conferences, and each of these has a different theme, including the Knowledge Commons, Urban Commons, and the Water Commons. You can find more information about each of these at the IASC website, iasc.commons.org. At the podcast, we are interviewing some of the organizers for each of these conferences, and these are appearing under our Commoning Episodes series. We are also working with the Open Access International Journal of the Commons, or IJC. In a recent episode, we interviewed the editors of IJC, Frank von Lerhoven, Mike Schoon, and Sergio Villamayor Tomas. You can listen to that episode to learn more about the journal and about our plans to collaborate with them later this year. In this episode, I spoke with Marta Berdez, a professor at the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at Arizona State University. During our conversation, Marta talked to me about her work on ecosystem service provision in several agricultural communities in Costa Rica and the importance of asking in this work who gets what services and why. We also talked about the role of powerful intermediaries in local agricultural systems, comparing Marta's experience in Costa Rica with mine in the Dominican Republic. We also talked about Marta's belief in the importance of participatory action research and how she's been implementing this perspective on her new research program on resilience and youth perspectives on green space in South Phoenix. I think our conversation reminded both of us of the value of fieldwork. To me, what is being missed by the lack of fieldwork during the pandemic, in addition to new data, is a sense of community that many of us get from dedicating ourselves to understanding people and places through our own eyes and ears and social interactions. This is the In Common Podcast. Well, so Marta, you mentioned that um, you moved to Canada with your family, you said when you were like 15 or... Yes. So I moved, my dad got an opportunity to work in Quebec. And so we moved. And so I lived in Montreal since I was 15 until I moved for my master's. Okay. So I was in Montreal to, for my high school. And then I did my undergrad at McGill. And so I was, I initially, so my undergrad is actually in chemistry of all things. Um, so in, in, and after that, I, I actually worked in the industry for a little bit. So I was working in Montreal East, which is well known for being this, um, sort of petrochemical hub of Montreal. So I was, I was, um, totally on the dark side of the force type of things. So I was working in, in the petrochemical industry, um, in a lab and, and then it increasingly became obvious to me that 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 wasn't what I wanted to do. And so then I went back, I was lucky because I went back to the School of the Environment uh, at McGill. And that's where I met with Gary Peterson. So he taught me modeling. Admittedly, I'm not a good modeler. He would tell you that I'm not a good modeler and he's right. Um, but I was still interested in, in a lot of the the concepts and like I think modeling attracts minds that like are systems thinkers and to me that was interesting and then Gary was teaching adaptive management and I remember that I took that course I took that course by mistake because I was in the wrong campus at 8 a.m one morning and I was supposed to be on the other campus and I wasn't gonna make it and so then I remembered that there was uh, this this posters that I had seen. So I walked into the classroom and and it all made sense to me. Like for me, it was this very intuitive way of thinking about natural resource management. And that was kind of my interest was going towards natural resource management. And I remember it's probably my, the only class in undergrad that has always made sense to me that that, you know, every lecture um, and you know, like I find it fascinating, and and so I think like that that was um, that determined a lot of my trajectory um, afterwards. And so, and and it was great because I I met Gary and and we've been in touch ever since. And you know, he provided me letters to to get into my master's program and 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 so on. And I mean, to this day, he still provides letters. So yeah, it's been a long way. And so that sounds like that was a really pivotal point that that started to lead you in the direction where you're still heading now. Yeah, no, I, I mean, like if you talk of classes or moments that 
change you, like they are transformative. I absolutely think that they, he called it adaptive environmental management class. Uh, that was a moment where, where things made sense to me that there was a very clear direction and I got it. Like to me, um, you know, people talk about resilience and, you know, you can love it or trash it or whatever. But uh, for me, it's always been a way of approaching a problem and of thinking about things. And to me, it always came very naturally once I understood it. Like the idea um, that you have systems and emergent properties and you have nonlinear behavior and that you have to think of as scales and and that you have to work in, you know, like adaptive environmental management, which prescribes, you know, the idea of the workshops and modeling, which was my interest in modeling failed. But all of that to me, was um it made sense it's not perfect i think it's missing a lot of other perspectives i think it doesn't have a good way a sophisticated way of thinking about power and agency but it still makes sense to me as an approach to many of the issues that i was i realized i was interested in so yeah okay so in that initial framing marta was was resilience and adaptive management put in contrast to say the command and control, the pathology of command and control? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so all of that. So I didn't know very much about natural resource management. And I remember uh, reading that, that paper uh, on the pathology of, of command and control and almost being in disbelief because I was like, so what? Do you, how do you mean that we manage this way? Like it doesn't even make a lot of sense, you know? And I didn't have a lot of background. So a, a lot of it, um, and I think like that, that one is, is like a brilliant contrast between how to manage adaptively and how um, how not. And, and then the pathology in terms of wanting to control the system so much that the system becomes very predictable, but at the expense of being able to deal with shocks, right? And so that increasingly you have to meet these conditions that are very narrow. And if those conditions fail, then you're very vulnerable to shocks. And so I think, and this is then, you know, like where the adaptive management um, figure eight comes from. And again, you can think of um, natural systems, but you can think of it as a metaphor for uh, broader systems like social ecological, social systems uh, with qualifications, lots of them, um, social, ecological, technological systems, and and that idea of, you know, what's the right balance in terms of how much uh, flexibility can the system absorb and how predictable you want the system to be, and all those trade-offs that we do in management. Um, to me, I, I still think that, that that's where we're at in, in some ways. Mm -hmm. So did resilience inform what you then went to do for your dissertation, I believe at York University? Yeah, which is interesting because even, even though I, um, so I was very interested by the idea of resilience, then I ended up going to, to York, uh, to the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University, which happens um, to be a very different space. Like the Faculty of Environmental Studies is much more towards, it's very interdisciplinary as a program, it's very social science oriented, it's very humanities oriented. And it's, I mean, to be quite honest, it's a very leftist um, place where, you know, like you would find more of the political ecologists, which have always been at odds with um, what I would say, um, the resilience sort of community. And, and this has been a, a debate for, for a long time, whether, you know, like resilience was appropriate, whether, you know, it wasn't, it was too uh, agnostic about power, uh, whereas, you know, like, do we really want to keep things resilient? Shouldn't we, you know, like transform and, and so on? And so I think in some ways, and, and I wouldn't say it was necessarily by design, but I ended up having uh, a little bit of both schools, having a lot of the uh, like resilience from uh, folks like, like Gary and from, you know, more folks that I met uh, from the Stockholm Resilience Center who, who, who like have, have always been like great and welcoming. And then having uh, this other perspective that was absolutely, you know, 
the opposite in terms of political ecology. And so I think that the one concept that I gravitated towards um, was ecosystem services because it allowed me to bring um, social and ecological aspects of you know the, the things that I was interested in together. So like I felt like it was like a very good bridging uh, concept and, and I was interested mostly about human well-being. And so th that concept allowed me to, to think about um, you know people who are producing ecosystem services, what do their well-being look like? And so all of this, I mean, I would say that ultimately if you if you dig deep, it's informed by both like the political ecology um, and by the resilience uh, sort of fields. And then my approach has always been participatory. I always felt that that was the best way of, of doing work. And um, I don't know where that comes from, um, but it got crystallized on looking at how folks that produce ecosystem services um, were impacted by that production. So I was working at that time in Costa Rica which was facilitated by York because York has a, a program that that takes you that takes undergraduates there, um, and so I was looking at four different communities in Costa Rica, and the four communities uh, where uh, they were doing environmental management from different perspectives. So some of them were uh, the typical plantation, large scale, you know, monocrop agriculture. Uh, then I had a smaller uh, communities that were smaller in size and they were doing coffee agriculture, like about a hectare. And then there were communities in the Brewer Indigenous Territory, which again, uh, were you know, um, small holding uh, agriculture uh, for plantain production. And so we were looking like I was using um, different techniques to figure out how well-being deferred um, and how well-being was shaped and tied to the production of ecosystem services. I mean, it sounds like one of your questions based on the paper you share with me, Marta, if it's based on this work is, um, it's kind of similar to a question we often ask about resilience, which is resilience of what and for whom. It's, it's kind of like ecosystem services for whom, like who's actually getting the benefits associated with those services. Yeah, and, and I think that that, that was, one of my uh, one of my interests was that you know of course at the time that I was starting my PhD it was at the time that uh, the Millennium Assessment came out um, which was about two thousand and five when, when the assessment came out and and they have that that image of the ecosystem services and the four types of ecosystem services and then tied to well being and well being is defined in a multi dimensional way however like I've always been interested in the arrows in the middle because it looks like the ecosystem services just flow to increase well-being but but it's like whose well-being and actual which services are um like which services impact which part of our well-being so i've i've always been interested interested in being able to qualify that relationship better and and there, that's where we can start thinking about the tools or the or the views that a political um, ecology perspective gives you in terms of start questioning access, right? Like who has access to the like to this ecosystem service? Because say in Costa Rica, it looks like we produce. Uh, I mean, that Costa Rica produces um, bananas, plantains, coffee, but those all leave and they go to the supermarkets in North America and in Europe. And, and furthermore, there's like this separation between the provisioning services going to supermarkets or to consumers in the North, and then the loss of regulating services, like all the uh, pollution, uh, erosion, uh, loss in soil nutrients, all, all of that stays really local. And furthermore, when you try, when then, you know, you try to compensate for that loss of regulating services, uh, you're going to go and use pesticides or you're going to use, um, ex and all these things have impacts for well-being. So it was kind of like trying to, to trace it, to put it all together. And it's a really complex system, right? So um, I think, as usual, when, when you do this sort of work that is very um, 
texture and, and looking at all the layers, you cannot do very much. So, you know, like we have case studies of four communities in Costa Rica, again, two, three years of work, but can only speak about two or three communities in Costa Rica. So I think like, you know, we failed to, to be able to, to say something more broadly for resource dependent communities. But um, I think the question is still there. Yeah, I mean, this is any case study is going to have that challenge. And I think that's a challenge that the comments field faces generally is that we've got these people over here, these people over here, and we kind of under leverage some of that knowledge that we're all occurring in different places. Um, so my, yeah, that, yeah, sorry. Well, I, I'm interested in something you've mentioned about um, the importance of this being participatory work. And you've mentioned to me in our, in our correspondence before this, the importance of participatory action research as something that matters to you. And I'm just, I would love to hear you talk about how those ideas impacted how you went about this research, how it impacted how you engage with these communities. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, I don't know where I feel, like I, I don't really know that I can trace um, my motivation for participatory action research to one particular moment. I think that it's always been important to me that your research impacts um, or benefits rather uh, like those who are who, who are, or have already been impacted by something else, right? So like um, then to me it was more interesting to offer um, a platform to use research as a platform to center and to amplify uh, the voices of of you know communities that had lived experience in terms of the production of ecosystem services and the impacts of it. Um, you know, I'm appreciative. I worked in Costa Rica with a team of epidemiologists, really strong team uh, at the Universidad Nacional. And uh, they, they do great work, like tracing the impacts of pesticides. But I was always interested in how people, how their lived experience was. Uh, so the way that I approach my research, like for instance, with ecosystem services, you can imagine that up until then, there was a lot of emphasis um, and like really good work of people who qualify, uh, quantify ecosystem services in terms of economics, um, like how much, you know, like how much do the world ecosystems produce, right? And so you have the Costanza paper. Um, or you had ecologists looking at ecosystem services in terms of yields and, and whatnot. And so that was one approach, but to me it was about, well, it's not a service unless somebody calls it a service, uh, unless somebody's getting benefited by it, right? And so for instance, like my, my, my first sort of um, research that, that I designed was to use PhotoVoice to understand ecosystem services. And so PhotoVoice is this method where you hand out um, cameras, um, these were disposable cameras, and uh, you get folks to take pictures. And so I told them to take pictures of um, nature, of things that were good and bad in nature. And so that opened up um, the conversation to seeing what they were seeing. I was interested in seeing how, how they were experiencing, you know, the production of the pineapples and, 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 and their life in general. And so the, the, the interesting part about it, um, so, so this is a technique that is normally used, originally was used in, on health assessments, right? And usually with very um, marginal populations that were perhaps difficult to get otherwise. And so they will show you, you know, the realities of their own lives. And so I was trying to adapt that methodology to looking at ecosystem services. And so it was enlightening in some ways. I, uh, I think that one of the things that was good about using PhotoVoice was that they would take a lot of pictures of pineapples, whereas it was very difficult to have a conversation about pineapples because you know, the, there's the fear that the company will let them go if they knew they were talking to foreigners about it. And and that's right. in a, one of the one of the four communities, or across several yes. of them, or I imagine there's some variation. I I so I only did that in in one of the communities um, initially, okay. um, and so I yes, so that was about a three month um, endeavor, and and so we did it on the, in the pineapple community. Um, 
And so they, they, we had maybe, I, I don't remember the exact number, but I think I had like maybe 11, 12 transects. And so people would take me and they would walk around and they would take pictures and then we would discuss the pictures. We would say, okay, why do you take a picture of this um, sugarcane field? And, and so it was interesting because it gave them a bit of a voice in terms of being able to identify what they care about and how they were um, qualifying it because you know, oftentimes the pineapples, maybe they talked about it in very sort of commercial transaction, transactional ways of like, you know, I work in the fields, it brings me money. That was the benefit, right? Uh, whereas say sugarcane, they would talk about it that way, but they would also maybe say, yeah, we use it for uh, particular desserts, right? Like there were traditional desserts. Um, so even though, you know, and these are things that you couldn't capture in a purely um, you know, yield-based uh, type of assessment. And then, um, so, and I think it also corrects sometimes, like I remember kids taking me to this water hole, it was, it, it was brown, like it was just, you know, it didn't look, it didn't look like what you think of Costa Rica. Uh, and I remember that they were going to start talking, I thought they were going to be talking about, you know, like skin disease and 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 whatnot and and no that, that was not it at all like they were showing it to me because they actually that was their sort of like hangout where the teenagers could just be up to no good and like jumping in the water no concern whatsoever about you know the quality of the water so i think it also corrects when you are a researcher and you have your own preconceptions i would have interpreted that picture very differently mm. and so that was that was good. And I think that, um, but they also did things like they would take pictures of roads, which is not an ecosystem service, but they were like, you know, this is really important for us. Like, so the, the roads and the bridges are important because that particular community, uh, when, when it rains heavily, uh, the roads get washed um, away. And so it's actually like, it gets um, uh, isolated, right? And so it gets cut off from, from, from everything else so the roads so we have to kind of like make a category of infrastructure because they wanted to talk about it and i felt well if they think this is their environment and they're defining their environment to be you know their built infrastructure as well but we're gonna have to you know like concede that this is important for their well-being we, it might not be an ecosystem service formally but clearly, if we're talking about their well-being and what they want to manage and how they want to manage their environment, we we need to go to, to to think about that as well. Yeah, it reminds me of this typology of different types of capital that I've seen, along with type, the typology that you're kind of implicitly talking about of ecosystem services. Yeah, physical I, I think capital, I, for example. Yes, and so like I mean, you have to realize that I, I you know, when when I was approaching, I'm I'm telling this as almost like, well, you, you know, that that's what we did, but that that's not truly how it all came. I mean, this is what it looks like now. But I had, I mean, I was very interested in a lot of other, you know, what we used to call development uh, literature, and so there was a lot about like the the five capitals and and you know, and so different conceptualizations of well-being. So, so there's a lot there, you know, like now it looks all kind of like, uh, you know, it was always meant to be. No, that, that was the product, but there were many iterations on, but, and, you know, I thought of doing surveys and then one of my local partners said, you know, people will answer a survey on well-being, but likely just to make you happy, like you're not going to get the information that you want. And so I moved away from doing a survey that was based on, uh, Max Mies, or I can't remember mm -hmm. what it was, but in other sort of frameworks that were really more focused on on well-being, to doing something that was a lot more qualitative. So we used the photo voice, and then we also used. I mean, I I didn't know how to ask people about their well-being, so eventually I started doing what we call fuzzy cognitive maps, which is a fancy way of saying you know you have a map with notes and arrows and they point to each other um and so i did this because i would just go to a person i would say well what do you need to to feel good you know and and they would say well i need a job and then i would say well like where do you get a job and so they would say well uh, the company and so we would start like mapping out their whole well-being and so we use that as a way of 
letting folks tell their story and, and take it in whatever direction seems more suitable. And the cool thing about it is that if you do those maps, you can see maybe which relationships are common, right? So like if people are talking about they need to apply pesticides in order to get good coffee yields, because that's one of the reasons, then that might be something that is really common. So then that particular relationship becomes really important to define the well-being in that community. So it's, it's, you can add the maps in some ways. Okay. So th that was one of the ways in which we, we um, sort of got around uh, trying to think of ways of uh, capturing and, and, and presenting well-being. Okay. And so, Marta, it sounds like also that part of your goal here was to compare these different communities because you mentioned that they have different, you know, on maybe this is oversimplifying it, but on a spectrum of like traditional to intensive and industrial, you've got the range, you've got the indigenous, more traditional, and then you've got these folks that are very expert oriented. And I'd love to hear like what you think the story was with respect to that comparison. Like what were the broad trends you found across the communities and across the spectrum vis-a-vis -vis ecosystem services, who's getting what and what are the power relationships I will add, there's one relationship I'm very interested in talking to you about because I think I've seen it in systems I work in. I think it's ubiquitous is the power of like the intermediary. If you want to start just by telling me, like, what do you think the broad comparisons you found across those four communities were? Yeah, so I'm glad that, that, that you put it that way because that's exactly what, we, what I was sort of after. I, I wanted, you know how uh, John Foley had like the, the flower diagrams for ecosystem services. And so... Then my my sort of thinking behind it was like, okay, well, if we can make flower diagrams of patterns of ecosystem services, can we make flower diagrams of patterns of human well-being? And would those correspond? Right? Like if you were to see a plantation, and we know that you know, high provisioning, low regulating, low to non-cultural, does that always produce uh the same pattern of um you know, well-being, and, and and so what what I found out, and and again, like, big grain of salt because this is case study and this is qualitative data. Um, but through the, the fuzzy cognitive mapping, uh, when when you map the relationships that were important, um, particularly, I map the banana plantations, which are very old systems established, you know, about a hundred, hundred maybe. 25 years ago in Costa Rica, um, and and the Bribri uh, territory, which produced uh, plantains, and and you look at the two maps, you look at, at the community maps, um, the additive ones, then you can see that there's they're different. So like we know that well-being is different, and we know that well-being depends in these communities because they're resource-dependent communities depends a lot on on that on the production of that resource, right? Um, one of the things that was evident was that, for instance, um, when it comes to to payment, and I'm not gonna say that plantation workers are compensated appropriately. There's a lot of issues in terms of unionizing, and and there's a, there's clear exploitation. I, I do not wanna um, uh, like make it sound any other way, but in terms of provision, um, in terms of basic income, they had higher basic income. At that time in Costa Rica, um, they were paid more than, say, for instance, what the indigenous folks were reporting in the Bribri territory when they were selling plantains, right? So uh, another thing that you would notice was that in the plantations, and specifically the banana plantations, um, health was, an, was always a problem, right? And there were very specific ways in which they would talk about health. Clearly the pesticides were a huge issue. And Costa Rica, uh, despite all the, all the sort of like green, um, like uh, imagery, rhetoric, like it, it, yeah. It, it, rhetoric, yeah. <laughs> like it has uh, really high use of, of pesticides, right? And so, um, the but not only that like the way that that workers talked about exhaustion it was the only place that they would say that they would give 
um, themselves shots of B12 so that they could um, keep working because the, the way that the plantation system works, you don't have a, a, a wage. You have to work, say, you know, like how many bunches have you picked that day? Right. So like there's like this thing where like they're going to continue working until they're exhausted. Right. And so really and, and that again. And then that, that was tied to with them not having very strong social relations, because what they were saying is, is, you know, they have to get up at like three, four in the morning. Uh, they go to the plantation. They're working at, like from five or whenever until, say, you know, three in the afternoon. And when they come home they they might be exhausted. They were communities where there was a perception of insecurity. Um, and this is not my perception. This is the perception of my local partners, where it was one of the few communities where they said, you know, we have a protocol at six, we're home, and we do not leave the house after the next day. So so what the people were sort of that translated into the workers not having much of time for socializing because and if you had family you had kids like there was not many many ways of socializing if the plantation takes that much time um so so those were some of the things where you can start seeing how the well-being is really defined by the way that we are producing the banana sorry now was the bribery uh territory great in terms of well-being they also had poverty, like poverty was a, a big issue, especially in the territory, uh, because it's sort of incorporating more into the market economy. And so there's a need for cash that maybe before they didn't need the cash. Um, and so there were, but poverty looked different. Uh, there was a lot more issues around, you know, losing their, like feeling like they were losing their values, feeling that their integration uh was going wasn't going the right way so it, it was um i would say the two of them presented just different profiles of human well-being right so i think that the idea that there might be patterns that we can sort of test uh hopefully it doesn't take you know three years and 200 interviews as i did for for these two cases but um there there is probably a pattern that that you can see and that hopefully it leads to intervention. Marta, this might sound like a random question. Um, <laughs> I, 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 oh, this is just fascinating. A week or two ago, I started to read up summaries of Karl Marx's arguments about self-alienation and capitalism. Yes. And it kind of blew my brain up. I feel like I've As seen this. Yeah. <laughs> I, yes, no, I, I absolutely, so so this is one interesting conversation that I wasn't even aware I was sort of pointing to to it in my uh, dissertation, but I do hang out with a lot of Marxists, so I kind of, um, I wouldn't call myself one, but I hear there's interesting things on, on, on those readings, and, and so I think like one of the things that is interesting in ecosystem services and we don't talk about is that they are co-produced, that there's in fact labor involved in the co-production of ecosystem services. Because we call them ecosystem services, there's like, I mean, it almost sounds like nature gives you the service. It's not, and I think that, that we, we do ourselves a disservice by obscuring the labor relations that are involved in the production of specifically commodities, but uh, I mean, you know, like all the lettuces, the strawberries, the pineapples, all of those are produced under very specific labor conditions that produce a lot of poverty around it. Um, but you can also think of, of uh, national parks. So you can think of uh, tourism industry in the Caribbean you can think of the way that you know people would take you to see the coral reefs and what kind of economies formed around you know visiting the coral reefs or what have you walking through the rainforest and so i think that we do not have or we as in the community that usually does ecosystem services doesn't think about labor in very sophisticated ways i think that if you are influenced by, by Marxist analyses, then you start seeing, you know, that's exactly how ecosystem services are produced. And yet, in a lot of our assessments, there's no way of, you know, like it doesn't matter um, 
if you have a banana and it produces like these yields, there's no way for you to tell like was it producing like in a organic um, traditional farming? Was it produced by you know like a big uh, plantation? And, and like I think like some of the things that you see in the plantation, it is about alienating people from their from the products uh, from the product of their labor. And I think that that goes. And again, it, there's this cycle where uh, they are alienated from from that, but they're also alienated from their community. And so the atomization of workers where they do, so like distrust is really high on plantations. People do not talk to each other, which works really well because then they don't unionize. So nobody wants to start having a conversation around you know unions because there are red lists in the in there. Like this is this is known. Uh, this is, uh, and you can talk to other people who, who have more experience in terms of unionizing in the Caribbean, in the uh, Costa Rican Caribbean. But the presence of, of, of those lists, the presence of people who, who, they're also very transient, those workers, because oftentimes they will come from Nicaragua. Uh, so so that, all, that, that all works to create a particular system that is producing uh, these ecosystem services. And yet all we can say from you know, like our perspective is like, oh yeah, yields are high or, or yields are this much. And so I think, and, and in one of my papers for my dissertation, I tried to use Jesse Rebo's um, uh, theory of, of access, which is a, a start in trying to think through what are the 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 barriers that you know we have in terms of the production of ecosystem services like what are so like if you look and you know when you say about intermediaries um in the Brewer indigenous territory which is where I was focusing on with that particular analysis um the intermediary who is a non-indigenous person who can travel between the capital city of San Jose and the Brewery Indigenous Territory, which is fairly inaccessible. It's, a, it's about, I mean, it's a small country, but it's five hours. And one of them is going up the hill, up the mountain. Um, so that person is incredibly powerful. So that person, uh, it not only, be, and it's powerful because, yes, like it's gonna get your, your, your produce, but also is a person like, especially when they're moving towards uh, from, from traditional to conventional agriculture, that person will tell you um, all the information you need to know about uh, applying pesticides. He has no clue. And they're all he's like, like there's no female uh, intermediaries, but they'll tell you like, yeah, well, you have to put these bags, you have to use this. They're not agronomists. They, they just tell them to the indigenous people what they have to do. Uh, they, they control acts and sometimes they will sell it to them too, right? So, so they control everything. So, There's very little yeah. things that, that the indigenous farmer actually controls once they move towards a conventional system. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like the, and this has been talked about a lot, the industrialization of agriculture has led to a, a disempowerment in many ways, a descaling of labor. And Absolutely. I mean, the patterns you're describing, Marta, really resonate strongly with me and are very similar to findings from our work on um, rice agriculture in the Dominican Republic. There's these very powerful intermediaries who, what's the best way to put it? The most powerful intermediaries there are these local agrochemical companies yeah. that are selling the inputs and they're also providing the financing for the inputs on like extremely yeah. high rates of interest. And part of the contract for the, the loan is that you actually then also buy your inputs from that same person and presumably get your technical advice from that person. Yeah, that's, that's, it's the same playbook, yeah. And we've just really, in our work, we've identified this, I don't it's not quite a bottleneck, although that's the word that's occurring to me, is like really one of the main barriers to pro-social, pro-environmental change in that system. And one question I've asked myself, and I'm interested, um, and your answer to this is, do you think, how do you think we nudge ourselves towards more beneficent or benign intermediary actors? The NGO that I'm working with in the DR is trying to do this. They're trying to work with their own set of farmers and be a better intermediary. So 
so I think like that's one of the answers because so what I was noticing was that there's a local market of for plantains and the local market from plantains in Costa Rica the majority of production comes from the Bribri territory in the Talamanca mountains it gets driven to San Jose into a local depot and then it gets like you know then it's distributed there's a lot of issues because even when indigenous folks might be able to rent or buy a truck and bring their produce to the local market the buyers see them and there's racism there's everything else and so they will not buy from those and once you cut a plantain you have to sell it because otherwise it, it, it rots right so what the ones that have been more successful have been the ones that created cooperatives of indigenous so an indigenous cooperative that was able to bypass the local market to sell internationally and so they will sell it as organic plantain that then companies that are making you know specialty products or so like the organic market um there was a company um i can't remember the name but it is um a baby food uh, company, so they use as an organic baby food company, so they use the plantain as part of like their base for baby stuff, and and so those were successful because they were bypassing the market to a different market that actually appreciated organic uh, agriculture, and and they could sell it, they could market it, they could brand it that way. I will say, whenever cooperative attempts happening in the territory, what I was told was that then right away, the intermediaries will, you know, catch it because they also how happens is like you go to a river bend and the intermediaries bring the trucks and then the folks will come by boat or by or walk and they will bring their produce, right? Everybody sees who's at the river. It's a very public place. So like if you are not coming this week and, and next week you're also not coming, and then I see you talking to somebody else, I'm gonna know, right? So the intermediaries catch up really quickly. And then they start increasing the price of the, you know, like the bunches until they make sure that the cooperative crashes. So that's what I was told, that it's really difficult because it's also a system that everybody knows each other. Right. Yeah. Okay. To pick up on something else you said, Marta, before we can transition to um, kind of what you're up to now, you mentioned that, you know, they're all he's. And I've experienced this in my own fieldwork, just how gendered a lot of um, these spaces are. Um, are women just excluded from this sector? Do they have a role? Are gender dynamics relevant to some of the things you're talking about? Well, you know, it's interesting because, um, yeah, the intermediaries, when I was in the field, I'd never seen a female intermediary. Uh, and most of them were from people who were outside the territory. Um, and, you know, they drove a truck, they had a truck. And so, however, the part that is interesting is that the bravery traditionally are a matriarchal society, right? So, for instance, the land is passed from mothers to daughters, right? And so, it, and and I don't claim to be a specialist on on bravery um, knowledge, but it, like th there's some issues around that because, again, with integration into the market, um, there's this power uh, and market. You know, like a lot of it trying. Um, so there's an impetus to want to talk to the males. You know, like because, like from outside, you like know, external it's, it's actors very... want to talk to a man. Is that what you're saying? Right. So, so, okay. so I think like there's like this external um, system that is very male dominated, and then you have the indigenous system where traditionally it has been uh, led. You know, and, and, and where mothers and and daughters and just females had had a, a more important role. So how do they actually sort that out? Um, is still to be seen, but I think that there's probably an, inter an interesting dynamic there. And I didn't start off, I just was told that, you know, yes, like is the daughters that, that pass on the land and, and, and whatnot. Hmm. So that's interesting. Also in the plantations, it was very gendered. 
So you have both plantation workers, males and, and females, but oftentimes the, the males will work in the field, the, the females were packers. Oftentimes, like they're the ones that are going to select the, the bunches and, and pack them in, into boxes. So, so there is, um, yes, I think there's a specific roles uh, th that mm. each of them assume. But I would say there's more to, to be done um, on, on that. And I think that there's like some interesting research coming out on fisheries and gender. Um, and I think that in general, we do not look hard enough, or again, maybe we are lacking tools to think of gender in natural resource management and the production of ecosystem services. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it would be a promising step to take based on this framing of wanting to know who's getting what ecosystem services and who has access to what that's often different between men and women. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Again, like more work to do. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So you're now at Arizona State University. Yes. Um, with a whole bunch of people that I know. Oh, good. Um, I was chatting with, with Mike Schoon the other day and I was like, oh, I'm going to interview Marta. He's like, oh, she's great. Yeah, Mark and I have been friends for like 15 years or something. Oh, oh that's, that's so good. Yeah. Yeah, we uh, went to grad yeah. school together. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, so you're from that yeah. crowd. I am. Oh, good. I, good that is a good way to put it. Yeah, I'm from that crowd. <laughs> Like that gang from Indiana. That's what, oh, yeah, I, I'm one of the Bloomington Mafia folks. Um, <laughs> well, so to, to, to wrap things up, I mean, are you still working in Costa Rica? I'm aware, yeah. I think I'm aware that you've moved to some, some local research like within Arizona. I'd love to just hear about that too. Yeah, so it's kind of funny because like I was all, uh, and, and I just like this conversation has made me just like feel really nostalgic for, for that type of work because like, I, I remember as hard as field work sometimes can be just exhausting and, and you know, there's all these things. Uh, I remember like specifically driving up the mountain in Salamanca and like the sun is setting and it's just a beautiful place to be. Uh, and just like thinking how happy, like I had to stop the car and just like feel happy for just this moment of field work and like feel grateful. And yeah, so I think like I'm absolutely the happiest when I'm in the fields. Um, but so what happened was that I I was so you know like I finished my, my my PhD and then I got hired as a postdoc to work on on this Eurex uh, so the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network which is a really large project that I mean it's it's talking about building resilience but it's in urban spaces so I you know and this is the joy about being a sort of like a resilient thinker where where you can apply the approach and the framing to a bunch of things because systems, complex systems are complex systems. And so I started working uh, here and I, and I was um, doing a lot of scenario uh, work uh, with, uh, with uh, cities in the States and Latin America to uh, figure out how to move towards a more resilient future. And then kind of like on the side, because I'm still like this participatory action research uh, uh, a, a researcher, actually, I, I started working uh, locally and also life changed. So I have two kids now. It's, you know, you can't be in Costa Rica for, you know, forever uh, up in the mountains and, and, and doing that sort of thing. Or uh, rather, it's not that you cannot do it. It's just more complicated. It takes more planning. Mm -hmm. And so um, so I feel bad because uh, that, that that was a research um avenue that I really enjoyed that that I haven't really been able to to take up again and I, and also international research is very expensive right so you you need diff, the funding is is it just uh wasn't there at that time to continue working on that so then what I did I started working here locally uh and it's been interesting because I don't have to travel uh and like organize a big you know field season I can just go down the lane and talk to folks and so I've been working, especially in, in this area of Phoenix uh, that we call South Phoenix. And so this is a, a historically um, underserved community. And it's been interesting because I have a lot of time to be able to actually not have an agenda, but let people talk about what they actually care about. And so I've been following a lot of local leads 
in terms of uh, what what should we be doing in terms of building resilience. So I have a project now with some schools, um, with with one school in particular, where we're looking at uh, youth perspectives of green space, and this is completely led. Uh, and so, like you know, I I do try to integrate you know like some of my interests in terms of like well-being and ecosystem services, but I've I've been able to be a lot more open in terms of the direction that they want to take. Um, and I mean, I'm very happy that a lot of the directions actually are end up being quite exciting for me. Um, so, so yeah, so that's like some of the work that we're doing um, at the at the local level with uh, the Central Arizona Phoenix Long-Term Ecological Research. Um, I'm also working with collectives, um, African-American leaders in South Phoenix who are interested in um, creating this social memory. And so we're like, working with elders to like sort of like get their stories and then use their stories as a way of informing the future like one of the things that happened with the project that was in is like yeah we created these visions of the future but do they really represent the folks that live in phoenix and i i don't you know like i i i, I had a hard time answering this question so we wanted i wanted to create a a process to create to to have black centric futures and so it's been two years of learning and conversations and things working or not working, but you know, it, it's ongoing and I think it's really fun. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so I've been doing a lot more local stuff now. That sounds fantastic. I felt for a while, I mean, there is the cost and just the logistical issues, but you know, each university has a comparative advantage in doing research nearby, right? Like, and why don't we I, do I think that more absolutely. than we do? I, yeah, so that's a really good question. Like, there's a there's this tendency to to want to you know travel across the world to to study some community uh, that might of might not have asked for your help. So that's also questionable. Another episode. Mm -hmm. uh, but 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 yeah, I think like one of the the really fun parts of working here is that I've been able to you know integrate it very um, easily with other work and. And you know, like you know, when you go into a into a new city, I was new here for years ago. Uh, you know, it takes you a while, but then you start realizing, oh, that person is connected to that organization and that organization. And so, like right now, I have a very nice network that I've come to appreciate a lot um, in terms of local folks that you know we have trust relationships or we're building trust relationships, and and it feels different. Um, in some ways, it's more impactful. Um, in some ways, I feel like I can be a better partner to them and a better ally to them. Well, it uh, seems like because, you could be more consistently present. Yes. And, and because there's not so much distance between our positionalities, right? Um, hmm. They live in Phoenix. I live in Phoenix. Clearly, I, I'm, I'm not trying to, to claim that, that our lives are similar, but th there's more commonalities. And I think that this is something that I didn't appreciate the depth of it. I didn't appreciate as a grad student where you're very eager to just go somewhere and, and, and travel and, and do some research in the global South. And, and now I question a lot of those. I mean, even though as much as I say that, you know, I loved it and, and, and I, I kind of like want to do more of this, I would like to approach things um, differently. Uh, and, and that wasn't a perspective that I necessarily had back then. Whereas now I feel, no, like this, this is like, it takes this long to actually build trust with communities, to have communities to say, hey, Martin, we have an idea. Can you help us? Very different uh, totally. from, you know, back back then. So, so yeah. I, mean, I think your observation, Martin, is that it takes a long time is really important. I think that is so often under understood and appreciated. And it's, it's a good point for science and it's a good point for practice. I feel like with some of my students and maybe I'm projecting a bit, but there's a sense, of, okay, we wanna, we wanna change things. And, oh, well, that means going to Washington. What does it mean? And when you work in a community for a long time, one of the main lessons you learn is just things take a while. Relationships don't just build. Like when I did my dissertation in rural New Mexico, I, needed, I spent like four months there before anyone would say anything to me. Yeah, yeah, right? rightly like so, yeah. Yeah, right, because who am I? And so 
I feel like in terms of science and practice, we need to appreciate the value of longevity yes. in terms of our relationship to a place. I think that that's absolutely true. So like when you have a project that you have been going back, you know, that you have, uh, you know, poor resources for a long time, it's very different than when you just started. And I think sometimes there's an underappreciation of that, especially when you're, when you're starting a PhD and you're, and you're like eager and, and, you know, like you want to do something. And, and we also have like, I mean, we carry all these ideas, like this white savior complex that, that that we act all the time in terms of like trying to find some community in Costa Rica, in whatever, in, somewhere in the global south that that you believe will be benefited by your research. And, and you know, like I would like to question, um, you know, who, who really has benefited from, from that? And I'm not trying to be disparaged of all international work. I, I just think that sometimes we have to be a bit honest about the yeah, dynamics. I mean, it, it sounds like you're reflecting on what's often called like parachute or extractive research in part. Yeah. I, I mean, there's there's that one. But even when you have, you know, like exposure, local partners, you've spent time in the country, it's, you know, there's a risk of, uh, and also I think like funding resources sometimes are difficult. Like you can get funded to go and do research. Sometimes that funding will run out before, so you cannot communicate results, right? Or not right. in an easy way, right? So I think like a lot of the, the funding that is needed at the end uh, for synthesis and dissemination and communication, it's more difficult. And then oftentimes the students have moved on uh, I mean, this happened to me, like I moved on. I, I haven't gone back to Costa Rica. Um, I mean, I did initially could go back every year. And so like I would do something and I would return results and we have an activity and we return uh, results. The very end, you know, I just ran out of money. And, and so I, it wasn't sort of like, and then I moved and I had a kid and then, you know, so life happens, but I think that we need to be accountable. And, and so how do you have those mechanisms for being accountable, even if it's not you, but your institution or, you know, like how, how, do, how do you do that? I think that is, that is tricky. Yeah. So the last planned question I have for you, Marta, is, is um, so you're at this school with a very long name. The School for <laughs> the Future of Innovation it. in Society. It's actually not, well, oh, college of, within the College of Global Futures. Um, you got it all right. Yep. I was reading it off a website. Um, <laughs> Still though, it's like hard to say with a straight face. How has it been like being at that school? Have you been collaborating with folks there on the work you just mentioned? Yeah. So I, I've actually, I really love the school for the future of innovation in society. And I think that one of the things that I really like and I've appreciated about this school, when I first got into the school, I was a bit confused. Like, you know, you, you're looking at the profiles in, in the website and you're like, well, you know, where, where do I fit? And, and I remember that, that sort of like somebody told me when I was going for the interview, like, do not, do not try to please us. Just be yourself. Like, don't try to tailor it because first of all, you will not be able to, like everybody's doing different things. It would be difficult for you to figure out like, what is it about? And so they were just sort of like, no, just, just tell us what you want to do. And so I've, and that has been sort of the case ever since where I've, I've gotten a lot of support to just do what you want to do. And so I've appreciated that, you know, you have a lot of, um, latitude and a lot of room to um to, to to roam and and think of ideas and i've also appreciated that being at asu and having been at asu for uh three years prior i had all these relationships so like my school um or or you know like nancy Grimm or like people that i was working with before i've been able to continue to to work with them um, new people that I, I mean, I've I'm recently working very closely with Lauren Keeler um, on creating, and, and you know, like she's like a great futurist, and and you know, like she does um, amazing work with cities, right? Like she's created all these um, games to get cities to think about to build capacity in, in cities, and so she invited me to work with her 
and the city of Tempe to update their, their climate action plan, looking specifically at, at equity considerations in, in the plan or trying to amplify the, the equity considerations of the plan. And so that's been, um, you know, like something like slowly, um, I'm starting to find the common ground with, with folks in, in my faculty. I would also say it's been a little bit rough to get, you know, my, my first month at the job was 2019, uh, August. So then in March, we, we, we closed the campus. And so, yeah. uh, it's, it's been challenging in, in that way, but there's amazing folks. And so I'm just, uh, I, I'm, I'm very happy. Are there other, um, are there other things you want to say about the COVID pandemic and how it's affected your work, how you've tried to adapt? I think that COVID has been, I mean, like, I mean, everybody has their COVID story. I think that for us, it was, um, you know, like my, my, my husband and I has been um, difficult because we were both, we're both working and we have two kids. And so we were just doing this sort of like insane shifts that involved no sleep. Whereas like one would work in the morning, the other one in the afternoon, put the kids to bed get up and work until two and get up and i, I don't know it, it was it it has been challenging i think one of the things that i mean and that has been challenging for everybody and and i think that all in all it would be unfair to complain when when people have lost a lot more than, than we have like we all in all we've been very lucky um so prefacing it with that, I think one of the things that I appreciated was the university quickly provided a lot of resources to, to switch to online education and teaching online. And that has been great. I think that we have not provided the same degree of support to switch your um, research. Um, and for people like me, I'm a participatory action research. I have to talk, I have to be with people. And so like, some of my projects that just came to a screeching halt because I was I wasn't able to get elders from the Africa. I mean, I would feel horrible if I were bringing elders from the African American community to tell me their stories. Like we couldn't do the interviews, so there was a lot of things that I've been able now to move online. But there is something about being able to to see people that it's different and, and you really cannot replicate. And somebody was asking me the other day, like, how do you get to know the community? And I would say, you know, I would go to random events. I would show up at an art gallery opening. I would go to a webinar, um, to a seminar. I would go to um, a community garden. Like, you know, like you just kind of like, you have to be at places for people to know who you are. And you can't do a lot of, it, you know, Zoom is good up to a point, but you can't reproduce some of that. No, it's really hard at reproducing these social informalities. It, is is, the infor, is that informal part, the, the sort of the casually, and I've had casual encounters like that where, you know, there's a cafe in South Phoenix that a lot, that is called Azucar Coffee, that is this like small, um, you know, uh, owned by this lady uh, from the community. And a lot of, you, you find a lot of activists and a lot of folks who, frequent that place right and so you might go to that place for a morning and honestly it's the best use of your time because you're gonna go and like find three more people that you've been meaning to connect with well you can't do that now so yeah. it's been it's been, so th that's that's hard but you know i also don't want to complain too too much like i think like i've been able also to switch a lot of the emphasis of my research from the the really participatory sort of grassroots work that I like doing to theoretical work. Uh, so like Mike- Back uh, to models. <laughs> no, I will never model. Like <laughs> I was told I couldn't. Okay. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, not in so many words, but I think that, that like for instance, like pushing resilience theory, like one of the, the things that Mike Schoon and I are, are working on was about thinking like now that we have the aftermath of the crisis what resilience mechanisms are actually showing up on the ground right like you know how we like to say like oh you need to build diversity and connectivity da, 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 da. it's like well what happened like you know maybe this crisis would allow us to test on the ground the responses like what have they been like right so like i think a lot of um 
thinking about resilience from a purely trying to develop the theory or advance the theory or or point to to uh, you know like conversations, discussions, debates in the field, which I also really enjoy. Like I'm also like you know like enjoy getting into that debate. Um, so I, I've I've been able to switch uh, towards the, that type of question. That's great. Yeah, yeah. All right, Marta, this has been really terrific. Um, are there any final uh, thoughts you want to share? Neil, thank you so much for for this. I think I appreciated. Um, it made me. Rem it reminded me of all the things I want to do. So it's been good. Uh, That's to, a good feeling. Yes, absolutely. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Incoming Podcast is produced by myself. Stefan Partolo and Courtney Hemmen Wagner. We are a partner project of the International Association for the Study of the Commons and the International Journal of the Commons. To listen to more episodes, you can go to your local podcasting app and to our website, incommonpodcast.org. There you will also find our blog and a link to our Patreon account that you can use to give us a small donation to help us cover operating costs. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at incommonpod.org.